This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. You know, we're going to talk about a topic today that deals with skin disorders. And we're delighted that we've got Dr. Shadi Damapur with us today. She's a board-certified dermatologist at North Dallas Dermatology Associates. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, skin care is so important, and we certainly don't want skin cancers. Why is it important to think about protecting yourself year-round? That's a great question, and it's one that I get from my patients every day. You know, I think that most people associate sun protection and sunscreen with summer and going to the beach. And when I ask my patients, are you wearing sunscreen every day? They say, yeah, when I'm outside. Uh, But what people don't realize is that the goal is to reduce cumulative sun damage. And so I always tell my patient that every bit counts. That short trip you're taking to the grocery store includes minutes outside in the sun. When you're driving in your car, you're getting UV rays penetrating through the window. So it's really important to lather up anytime you're leaving home. You know, it's beginning of summer, Memorial Day weekend, people going to lakes, beaches, picnics. We need to be in the protection mode, correct? Right. So the best way to protect yourself is by using a broad spectrum sunscreen. And what that means is that it protects from both types of UV rays. The best sunscreens contain zinc or titanium, which are physical blockers. And it's important to know that really no sunscreen is waterproof. So if you're going to jump in the water, you have to reapply right when you come out of the water. Uh, For those going skiing, we see tons and tons of sunburns from skiing because uh, the sun reflects off the snow and it's actually significantly stronger. So, you know, the areas that are covered are, you know, well covered because it's so cold, but make sure you protect your face, your ears, your hands from the sun because we see tons of sunburns from skiing. You know, we talk about skin disorders on spring break, but one of the most serious is melanoma. And I think about 106,000 people annually are diagnosed with melanoma. Can you explain to our listeners what this is and how serious it is? Of course. Um, There are several types of skin cancer, but melanoma is by far the most serious one. And I won't bog you down in, you know, details of science, but melanoma is a cancer of melanocytes, which are cells in our skin that produce pigment. And it's dangerous because of its ability to spread to other organs very quickly if left untreated. However, I want to stress that it's very preventable by protecting your skin from the sun and monitoring your skin for irregular lesions. So one way that you can monitor yourself is by following the A, B, C, D, E of melanoma. So let me go through this. So A is for asymmetry. Um, If you were to take a piece of paper and fold it in half and the sides don't match up, That's an asymmetric mole and something that should be evaluated. 
B stands for border, and many melanomas have an uneven border as opposed to a normal-looking mole, which has a smooth, very regular shape. Uh, C stands for color, and multiple colors are a red flag. So these can include red, blue, pink, in addition to the brown and black that is most commonly associated with melanoma. D is for diameter, and honestly, this is probably the least important because you can have tiny melanomas um, and you can have larger melanomas. But E is for evolving, and I find this to be the most important because really any mole that is changing in size, shape, symptom, if it starts itching, if it's bleeding, that definitely warrants attention by a dermatologist. Let me ask you this. Are men or women more affected by melanoma? You know, the statistics show that there are more cases of melanoma in men. And actually, not only are men more likely to develop melanoma, but they are more likely to die from it than women of the same age. And I think that there are several reasons for that statistic. In general, we know that men tend not to keep up as well with healthcare maintenance uh, while women are more compliant with doctor's visits. For example, my husband, who's a doctor, won't see a doctor unless I make an appointment for him. But there are also differences in men's skin that makes them more susceptible. So they have thicker skin with less fat underneath, and that makes them more likely to be damaged by the sun's rays. And then I think also sun protection is a big reason why melanoma strikes men harder. Uh, We've seen studies that show that men are less informed about skin cancer and therefore, of course, less likely to protect their skin from the sun. Uh, And the fact that women wear sunscreen more often is also in part because women use daily makeup and other cosmetics that contain sunscreen in them. You mentioned melanoma is more predominant in men. What about other demographics? So all types of skin cancer are more common in fair-skinned individuals. And this is due to a lack of melanin or pigment in the skin, which is protective against harmful UV rays. However, everyone can be affected by skin cancer. And it's important to note that in skin of color, melanomas are more likely to occur in less obvious locations. So this can include the palms, the soles, the nails, inside the mouth. And because these areas are less frequently examined, diagnosis is often delayed and prognosis is worse. So don't forget to include these areas in your self-skin checks. You know, we talked about melanoma. I'm going to shift gears a little bit for our listeners here. What are some of the other common skin cancers? How do you treat them and are they curable? So that's a great question. Um, One in five Americans will develop skin cancer by the age of 70. So that makes skin cancer the most common cancer worldwide. And while melanoma is the most serious, it is not the most common. The most common types are called basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. And 90% of these two cancers are associated with UV radiation from the sun. And they're considered a curable disease with cure rates that are very high if they're detected early and appropriately treated. And they actually present differently than melanoma. So if you're looking at your skin, 
to detect a basal cell carcinoma, these typically present as a small pink or skin-colored bump that is usually confused with a pimple. Um, and they can bleed often, but they don't go away. Squamous cell carcinomas usually appear as a rough or warty-looking bump. And as a rule of thumb, the appearance of a new growth or a sore that doesn't heal should be evaluated. And just, you know, going back to melanoma, which, as we mentioned, is the most aggressive skin cancer, early detection is the best predictor of prognosis. And again, it is very treatable if it's caught early. We're listening to Dr. Shadi Damanpour. She's a board-certified dermatologist at North Dallas Dermatology Associates. It's our biggest organ in our body, so let's take care of it well. More on how to do that next on the human side of healthcare. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking about how to take care of the biggest organ in our body with Dr. Shadi Damanpour, a board-certified dermatologist at North Dallas Dermatology Associates. Steve? You know, if you have this type of cancer, non-melanoma, I've heard there's a surgery called Mohs surgery. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? Definitely. Historically, Mohs surgery is actually the treatment of choice for basal and squamous cell carcinomas. Um, and it's a specialized technique that's reserved for when these skin cancers are located on the face, hands, or other sensitive areas. And the procedure is done in stages while the patient waits. And this allows for removal of all the cancer cells while sparing healthy tissue and it leaves the smallest possible scar in those sensitive locations. Now, more recently, Mohs surgery has been implemented in the treatment of early melanomas, um, melanoma in situs, which are uh, melanomas that haven't invaded the top layer of the skin. However, for deeper melanomas, they're still treated by a larger excision. So let me ask you, if someone is doing a self-examination and they notice a lesion, and let's say it's a pigmented lesion, is that a sign they could have skin cancer? That's a good question. And usually when we talk about pigmented lesions, what we're referring to are moles, what we commonly call moles. Um, so we briefly reviewed that melanocytes are the pigment-producing cells in the skin, and they create melanin, which gives the skin its color. And we refer to lesions that contain melanin as pigmented lesions. So this can include other spots like freckles or sunspots, um, and most of these are benign and not indicative of skin cancer. However, it can be, you know, very subtle and difficult to tell the difference between a freckle and a mole. So it's always best to see a dermatologist if you notice a new lesion. You know, many times we get sunburn at the beach, even when we're out playing as kids. Does that mean you could get skin cancer later in life? Now, this is not meant to scare you, but UV radiation is a proven carcinogen, so repeated sunburns do raise the risk of skin cancer. And as I mentioned earlier, sun damage is cumulative, so the risk does increase over time. It's been shown that having five or more sunburns doubles the risk of melanoma. 
But as with most medical conditions, a genetic predisposition and environmental exposures in combination will lead to a skin cancer. For example, not every smoker will develop lung cancer. Similarly, not every sun worshiper will develop skin cancer if they have luck and genetics on their side. But in my opinion, it's not worth playing your odds. You know, if all listeners out there that say, well, you know, I'm not going to go out in the sun, I'm going to go to a tanning salon and I'm going to use a tanning bed. I'd love to know your thoughts related to tanning beds. That makes a dermatologist cringe. (laughs) Um, You know, the indoor tanning devices emit UV radiation that's 10 to 15 times higher than the sun at its peak intensity. Um, so the, the fact that tanning beds still exist is very upsetting to dermatologists. And there are several countries that have actually banned indoor tanning altogether. Um, and many have banned it for those younger than 18. That's because more people can develop skin cancer because of indoor tanning than develop lung cancer because of smoking. Can you repeat that again? I want our listeners to hear that. Do you mind repeating that one more time? Of course, more people develop skin cancer because of indoor tanning than develop lung cancer because of smoking. That is amazing. I know. So for the average person, how often should they see a dermatologist? That's a great question, and it varies based on risk. Um, So I would recommend seeing a dermatologist, if you haven't already, for a baseline screening. And that means the dermatologist will look at you from head to toe and assess based on your skin type, your family history, uh, your exposure to sunburns and tanning beds. If you need an annual skin check, if you need a skin check every few years, or if you need more frequent skin checks, like every three to six months, once they have that baseline assessment, they can let you know how frequently you would need to be screened. You know, once you've established your baseline, things change. Moles may grow. Are those the kind of things that can happen? Yes, that could definitely happen, and that is called monitoring. If we're concerned about a mole, it will likely be biopsied on the day of the visit. However, if a mole doesn't look like it's diagnostically a melanoma, then sometimes we'll monitor them, like you said. We'll take a photo and a measurement and have the patient come back in three to six months to reevaluate if there has been any change. Um, And that's usually a good amount of time where we're able to assess if there has been. And if there hasn't, then we might continue to monitor it. Um, People who have many, many moles sometimes actually do something called total body photography, where they get photos taken of their body so that when they come in, we're able to compare what we're seeing in person to photos, and then we can also assess for change that way. Because as we mentioned, change is the most important risk factor for a melanoma. Is melanoma genetic? Yes, it does indicate that they're at higher risk, and so they would probably be in the category where we would screen them more frequently for skin cancer. You know, Dr. Shadi, we've talked a lot about sunscreen Is there any type of clothing you can wear to also protect yourself? 
Yes, and that's a great question. And as a new mom, I find that it's, you know, my savior because trying to apply sunscreen to yourself, your husband, and a squirming child is no easy task. Um, so there are f- several great companies that make what we call UPF clothing, and this has SPF of 50 in it. They make shirts and pants, long sleeves, and they're actually, you know, quite fashionable. And it's easier than applying reapplying sunscreen every few hours, like we were mentioning before. So as long as you're wearing this in the areas that are covered, if you have a long sleeve UPF shirt and a hat that protects your ears and neck, then you know you only have to apply sunscreen to your face, hands, and other exposed body parts. You know, I've asked you a lot of questions. Any final messages for our listeners? The most important thing that I feel I cannot stress enough is that early detection saves lives. So when detected early, the five-year survival for melanoma, which is the most aggressive skin cancer, is 99%. So I encourage you to see your local board-certified dermatologist for your routine skin exams and to make sun protection a daily part of your routine. So put your sunscreen next to your toothbrush right after you brush your teeth, apply your sunscreen, and then come see us. Now... I know that people are shifting seasons and they think, oh, people might be listening to this and say, oh, I need to go grab some sunscreen and put it in my pack or my bag. And they go dig through a cabinet and they find an old tube of sunscreen that looks like a tube of toothpaste. It's squeezed in the middle. It's been used. But (laughs) Lord only knows how old it is. Right. So what about the age? How long is sunscreen good for? So they actually have expiration dates on the bottle. So as long as it's not expired, it's good. You should be using sunscreen enough that you don't have expired bottles at home. Because <laughs> they're not that big. And it really takes more sunscreen than you think to cover your whole body. So for a beach vacation, you should grab a couple and you should finish all of them while you're there. All right. Point taken <laughs> and very good advice. All right, let me ask you this. You mentioned the five-year survival with melanoma. Years ago, if a lady got a diagnosis of breast cancer, it was a very serious diagnosis. Today, it may be, but it also may not be, and so has developed with a number of other cancers, fortunately. How have we progressed in the treatment of skin cancers once they are detected? You know, equally as well, we've done, there have been tremendous advances in the diagnosis and treatment of skin cancers. The basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers, like I said, are almost 99% cured uh, when treated early. For melanomas, you know, 10 years ago, if you were diagnosed with metastatic melanoma, it it could be a death sentence. Uh, But today we have so many different treatments, so many targeted therapies and uh, immunotherapies where we activate the immune system to fight the melanoma that people can live for many, many years with metastatic melanoma. Dr. Shadi Damanpour from North Dallas Dermatology Associates. This interview is in its entirety on our audio podcast and on YouTube, The Human Side of Healthcare. Now, it's summer, it's Memorial Weekend, and we're going to talk about spiders in North Texas, but there are only two that you have to worry about, two that are poisonous. We'll tell you which ones they are next. 
Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. Delighted you've joined us today. You know, there are hundreds of species of spiders in North Texas, but you really only have to worry about two of these. We're going to learn more about that today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Otto Marquez, emergency medicine physician at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital in Dallas. And yes, we're going to be talking about the brown recluse and the black widow spider. Dr. Marquez, welcome to the show. Well, uh, thank you. And thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. You know, when you think of spiders that have poison, you know, we think of the brown recluse and we think of black widow spiders. Which states would you say they are the most pronounced in? And would you find them more inside a home or outside a home? So they're in both places. Uh, the, The black widow spider is basically on every continent in the world except for Antarctica. And the brown recluse is throughout the south, central, and the midwest part of the United States. They're found both inside the house and garages and outside. The black widow likes cool areas, and the brown recluse, as the name, they're, they're both, both of the spiders are very timid and don't like being around humans, so they stay away from you and would rather get away from you than attack you. So if one of these spiders, either one, should bite you, would you know you've been bitten? Would you feel it, or does it sometimes go unnoticed? So the brown recluse takes about three to eight hours before you feel anything. So at first, the brown recluse, you do not feel the bite, but three to eight hours later, you do feel it. Now, the black widow, you will feel, you will feel the sting right away. What are some of the symptoms that you get for both kinds of these spider bites? Most of these spider bites, believe it or not, are pretty much benign. Most people uh, do fine and don't need medical attention uh, when, they, when they do happen. They're very rare, actually, but when they do happen, they're actually not as bad as everybody thinks they are. Now, there is you know, some people that have bad reactions to them, especially with younger children who are smaller. The, you know, the black widow's venom can cause some problems. So it just, it just depends. But the majority of them are not as bad as everybody thinks, but there is some, there is some bad things for, with both of them that I can go over with you. So I know you mentioned age. Are there other red flags that should really raise alarm when you have one of these spider bites? So with the black widow, if you get bitten by a black widow and you have abdominal cramping, abdominal rigidity, start having convulsions, you know, seizures, having headaches, nausea, increased pain at the site, or profuse sweating, or become unconscious or vomiting, those are very serious reactions, and you should definitely seek medical attention, obviously, for those. those. Now, the brown recluse, you can get chills, fever, nausea, uh, necrosis at the bite site, which means just dying of the tissue at the bite site, or nothing can happen. You can get, become restless, have weakness, uh, develop red, white, and blue lesions at, at the bite site with the brown recluse. You know, a friend of mine, unfortunately, got bitten by a brown recluse, and he did have to go to the emergency room, and he did have some of the skin around it dying. How does that progress from the time you get bitten 
till you notice some really discoloration in your skin around the bite. Right. So at first it's all it's red and, and, and it usually doesn't hurt at first. And then it develops an ulcer in the middle and, and starts to die in the middle. It can take up to about three weeks. Most of those resolve on their own. If you see the spider and you, and you, and you identify that it's a brown recluse uh, or black widow, you call poison control and call your family doctor or come see us in the emergency room here at Presbyterian if you're worried, if you're concerned about it. So if you get bitten, say, after working in the yard, uh, and you realize you've got a red spot, and you can tell you've been bitten by something. Are there any home remedies that you would recommend before sure. you define your problem as being severe? So the, the problem that I see is most people don't see the spider. Most people come in with a, with a big abscess or a couple abscesses on their body, and they assume it's a spider. Uh, and a lot of times it's not a spider. Unless they see the spider, bite them, that's, that's when they should assume it's a spider. Most of the time, it's not a spider. It's something else like, like, like my MRSA. But if you are bitten, I would, it's like anything, I would clean it with soap and water right away because you, you can get a secondary infection with bacteria. Also, I would put some antibiotic ointment on it. I would put ice and elevate it and call poison control. If you, if you definitely saw the spider and identified either of those spiders. So could you define MRSA, please? So MRSA stands for methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. It's a bacteria that's all over, everywhere, and with all the use of antibiotics, they become resistant to, to certain antibiotics. So you only can use certain antibiotics to kill this bacteria, the staphylococcal bacteria. And, and usually we can tell it's that. We treat you with a certain antibiotic, and we, we can cover it with that antibiotic. Um, years ago, when we were kids, or, we didn't have much methicillin-resistant staph. Uh, because we weren't using as much antibiotics. But with the use and overuse of antibiotics, these bacteria that are everywhere have become resistant to most antibiotics, uh, or at least the methyl-resistant uh, MRSA bacteria. You know, if you have, as you mentioned, uh, MRSA infection, uh, sometimes that seems somewhat similar in appearance to a spider bite. Is there anything that helps you differentiate between the two? Yes, so they're very similar. It's even hard for us to distinguish between a spider bite and the MRSA. Most of those lesions are not spider bites. Most of those lesions are either MRSA or some other bacteria. The, the spider bites are not as frequent. People assume that it's a spider bite, but they actually didn't see a spider bite bite them, and they come and present complaining of a spider bite. It's actually not a spider bite, and most are not spider bites. Most are MRSA, and MRSA is tender, and it hurts. And the brown recluse doesn't hurt at first. That would be one distinguishing thing. But most of the time, these are not spider bites. I would be concerned with children because they're very small because the venom of the black widow is like 15 times as strong as a rattlesnake. But the good thing is it's very small amount of venom that gets injected into you. And a lot of the times it's a dry bite where they actually bite you and don't inject any venom. An adult can, can take it pretty good, uh, but with small children... Uh, they should definitely definitely call poison control and seek medical help if they, if they do see the spider. You know, you mentioned something in your answer that fascinated me. I know you said that obviously a spider sometimes does drop bites, and when they do bite, they won't inject as much venom as, say, a rattlesnake. But did I hear you correctly? The black widow venom itself 
is 15 times more potent than a rattlesnake. That is correct. It is 15 times more potent than a rattlesnake venom. Wow. That's, that's, that is. Yeah. But, um, yes. So good thing they're not big like a rattlesnake, like widow spiders. But they inject such a little tiny bit that it you know, it's, usually doesn't cause problems. You know, Thomas and I have done a lot of interviews, and just about every medical professional we've talked to, whether you're talking about type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular, rattlesnake bites, and now we're talking about spider bites, prevention is one of the key things you can do. And I was going to ask you, I read that if you work out in the yard or you have old work shoes in the garage, you should turn them upside down and shake them good because brown recluse love that. Is that true? That, that is true. Yeah, they, they love being in shoes. They, lo- they like being in your garage. And they can be in there in the winter when it's cold. And they can be in your attic when it's, when it's hot. They can go weeks without drinking water or eating. But as the name states, they're recluse. They're, they won't attack you. There's places where there's infestations of, bra- of brown recluse spiders, and people don't get bitten. They're, they're very timid spiders, only unless they get cornered or you step on them or do something like that. And the thing to do is, obviously, they're under logs and, and you, in your shoes or between wood, uh, under rocks. Uh, so the thing is to clean it. You know, if you, I, would, I would definitely do that and, and and black widows, like if you toilets outside, they can be around there, those kind of places. The other thing is keep, you know, get, get, dim your, don't have lights out at night a lot, or at least have the yellow light bulbs, because that attracts insects, and insects the spiders like, and it attracts those spiders. Eliminate the light, you know, clear the wood, the brush, uh, the grass you know, around your house, cock up the, your house so they don't get into your house, that kind of stuff. Wear gloves when you're working in the yard, and, and that, kind of, so that sort of thing. You know, you're so right. I had another friend of mine, and he was wearing gloves, but his sprinkler system was acting up. So he went to the main valve, and he flipped the lid off. And when he flipped it over, there was a black widow right under yeah. the lid. Yeah, they love the black widows love cool places, uh, but they won't attack you. They won't really attack you. You can even uh, they they have webs, and you can actually if they're on, if they're on their web and you mess with their with their web, they'll actually try to get away from you versus attacking you like if even if you hit their web they're, they'd rather not attack you they'd rather they're, they're go away so the, 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 unless he's stuck you know the, unless they feel like they're being threatened and cornered they'll bite you so let's assume you need medical attention what would you say are the red flags or the point that you should seek medical attention for a spider bite okay so for the black widow spider the the venom is a neurotoxin so it kind of it affects your neural system. So if you develop cramping, I mean, obviously, or convulsions, or your abdomen becomes rigid, start having headaches, become nauseous, profuse sweating, uh, obviously become unconscious, vomiting, I would seek medical attention. Now, for the brown recluse, it is more of a local toxin. It affects the tissue more, and it necrosis the tissue, kills the tissue versus being a neurotoxin like the black widow, and you can get chills, you can get fever, 
You can get nausea and restlessness and become weak. Those I would seek medical attention. We've been listening to Dr. Otto Marquez, emergency physician at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital, Dallas. Even though there are only two poisonous spiders in North Texas, you still don't want to get bit by one of them. And if you missed any of this, catch our podcast or our YouTube channel, The Human Side of Healthcare. Next, we're going to talk about child development and what to look for if something may not be right. Excellent points from Children's Health next. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back to the human side of healthcare. Hope you're enjoying your Memorial Day weekend. You know, Thomas, so many families are blessed with beautiful new babies that are born throughout North Texas at our hospitals. But sometimes, not often, but sometimes, parents do notice as these babies grow, they're not just right. What is wrong? And how do we find out how to correct the problem? So with us to talk about this in this segment, Dr. Sama Kayani, and she is a pediatric neurologist at Children's Health and also serves as an assistant professor at UT Southwestern. Dr. Kayani, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Can you discuss some of the rare diseases that occur with young children, and what role does a genetic treatment specialist play? Yes. So if your child is experiencing any symptoms or clinical signs, that are consistent with the neurologic disease, you probably want to see your PCP who would probably refer you to a neurogenetics or um, neurology specialist. So let's talk about what is a symptom and what is a clinical sign. A symptom is a physical or mental problem that someone may experience. And in cases of um, pediatrics, it is something that is noticed by a parent, um, by parents or a caregiver. An example can be lack of developmental progress in their early life. Like if, if your child is not walking by the age they're supposed to walk, or if your child is not talking by the age they're supposed to talk, that's when you wanna seek uh, medical attention. A clinical sign is something that your physician, pediatrician will discover during exam. An example can be low muscle tone, um, again, delays in development, um, balance or coordination problems, which is called ataxia. And one of the biggest red flags is regression in the developmental skills. And when we say regression, it means that your child had acquired a developmental milestone, like they were talking in sentences and then they stopped talking in sentences or they stopped talking the way um, they were talking, like their speech is not as clear or they started having um, in coordination of their speech. So regression in developmental skills, um, problems with motor development, any other neurologic signs uh, or symptoms like uh, if your child is having seizures, these are all very important reasons uh, to seek a subspecialty care or um, some somebody who has um, 
uh, expertise in uh, neurological, uh, in treating and diagnosing um, neurological diseases. You mentioned in your answer, looking at progress such as walking and talking. Prior to that, from an infant being born up to that point, are there any other signs or symptoms parents could pick up on? Yes. You know, it, it might be a little bit harder for a new parent, um, especially if it is your first child. Um, but um, that is why I think it is important to take uh, kids to their regular pediatrics visit. And in the first year and second year of life, you see that par- these kids, babies, are supposed to go see their pediatrician. They're supposed to go back like at two weeks and then every couple of months they get a they get to see their pediatrician where they get a developmental screen according to AAPs or American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines. And that developmental screen is something that is really helpful in determining if there are early signs or symptoms that are consistent with the disease that needs to be addressed early on. And some of those symptoms, again, can be if your child is not eating the way uh, they should be, if they're not feeding, if they're not able to latch on to uh, the bottle, if they're not able to feed enough of the formula um, to sustain their caloric needs uh, for, for a day, if they're acting tired, um, those are some other symptoms that you could that would be able to see early on um, before um, you know they're supposed to walk and talk. And before they walk, patient, kids they have other t- motor milestones like they're supposed to hold their neck up or hold their head up properly by one month of age. You should see an improvement after they start holding their neck up, they start holding their trunk up. That helps them to sit up around six months of age. And that is uh, something, you know, that if parents notice that, oh, my child is, you know, two months old and they still are not able to hold their head up, they're not able to feed properly, they are uh, not able to focus at me or they're not smiling at me. These are some other things that uh, you should, you know, go ask a question to your pediatrician. Is this normal? Um, And um, get the developmental screen through pediatrician's office. You know, when parents pick up on these symptoms or signs, when they contact a neurogenetic specialist, what can they expect? By the time patients come to visit a specialist, Um, They probably have seen their pediatrician or primary care physician, uh, and it is always helpful um, for us to get the previous medical records, lab tests, if there were, you know, any imaging studies, uh, actual copy of the report of the MRI or CT scan, if it was done before coming to the clinic. When you come to the clinic, it's just like any other clinic visit. We uh, sit down with the family and we like to review a very comprehensive review of uh, their past medical history, which for babies, you can imagine it's mostly their birth history and developmental history. We want to sit with the family and make sure that we, uh, we are not seeing any other concerns of, you know, pertaining to like in neurology clinic, yeah, we will probably focus on neurologic symptoms, but we want to make sure that we're not missing any other problems. Like if the child was diagnosed with a heart condition or a kidney condition, or if there was any concerns of them um, not feeding well or having reflux or issues with their, you know, stomach or digestion. So all these things, we'll talk about those. And then we do a very comprehensive physical exam. And based on the, the, 
the interview, the clinical interview findings, and based on the physical exam findings, then we would start the diagnostic testing. And the diagnostic testing will include um, probably something like a neuroimaging MRI of the brain, which in little kids we probably have to do um, under anesthesia or sedation. Um, then we may order some other specialized tests like an electroencephalogram or EEG. Um, we order uh, some genetic testing if we're seeing there are red flags of um, a genetic syndrome or a neurogenetics or neurometabolic disorder. Um, so the genetic testing entails like it's basically a blood test. So we take the blood, harvest the DNA from white blood cells and uh, send it for a testing that helps us answer um, why uh, the child has um, any neurological or medical problems. You know, thank you so much for all of this wealth of information. You know, as we close today, this must be so difficult for parents to receive these diagnoses. As someone that treats this every day, what advice do you have for these parents? It is hard, and some days are more difficult than the others. But I think I do want to say that I want these parents to know that they're not alone. And there are people who are working on these diseases. There are people who have a passion to get these diseases to the center stage of the clinical trials, center stage of a, you know, getting a therapeutic strategy. And we are here to help. So please reach out and we, we will do whatever we can do to um, help the rare disease community. This has been Dr. Saima Kayani, pediatric neurologist at Children's Health. Very touching story. Steve? You're so right, Thomas. A very important topic. In fact, what a show today. You know, it's Memorial Day weekend, Thomas. Now, you're going to go lay on the beach, and if you do, you better use that suntan lotion and don't go out and play with spiders. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's go down the list. Need a new tube of sunscreen, prefer the mountains to the beach, and now know what to do if a spider did bite. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Stay safe, and we'll see you next Sunday on the human side of healthcare.